God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Cars and Comrades podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight, I'm here with Brandon, he, him. Bryant, he, him. Connor, he, him. And Zach, he, him. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Doing okay. Not bad. Bad. <laughs> Not bad. The opposite of that. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, poor Brandon. Overworked and uh, I would say underpaid, but not really. Just overworked and uh, unable to spend all that nice green cash you're making. Overworked is like a good place for me. It keeps a lot of my shit in check. And yeah, I'm embarrassed about how much I'm a worker, but I function well in that position. So whatever. No, I mean, there's nothing else Marxists like better than, than workers. So, but yeah, so we're going to continue talking about Walter Ruther. And uh, hopefully, Connor, I'm hoping that you remember where we left off the last time because I sure don't. I do. I do. So today we're going to be pretty much solidly in the 1950s. Then the next time we'll get into the 1960s and all of that. But this is going to be post Taft Hartley. And mm-hmm. we're going to kind of see how all of that works out. And we're going to get into the um, merge between the AFL and the CIO. So that's going to be a big uh, portion of today. Sounds good. All right. Um, well, kind of recapping a little bit. Last time I know we talked about the Taft-Hartley Act. We as leftists probably hear this come up quite often. It's basically the thing that destroyed unions. And of course, Walter made the best of a bad situation with Taft-Hartley. You know, he kind of used it to his advantage a little bit to purge his leftist adversaries in the labor movement. Of course, he kind of got what he wanted. Of course, it was the very thing that also damaged the labor movement and pretty much prevented a lot of the stuff that he actually wanted to accomplish through labor organizing. So a little ironic there. But um, so we'll remember Taft-Hartley. Yeah, do you think that was like shooting himself in the foot or it just was worth it to him it to get rid of these... It was it was shooting himself in the foot. I think Mm -hmm. he underestimated. So like because he was in a it was a very personal kind of battle with the communists in the unions. um, I I think he took it a little personally and underest and therefore underestimated what they were adding to the labor movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think it kind of clouded his judgment a little bit because he did he did gleefully purge them. Um, But when he did, you know, he's left with, okay, well, now we're pursuing the strategy that I wanted. But I I do think that there is a part of Walter, at least to some degree, um, that kind of recognized that, oh, there's a lot of shit that we can't do now, though. And so that led to um, his actions in the 50s and 60s. So kind of big picture view. um, He switched from what was like on the ground organizing to as the head of these unions, um, he, he did switch to a more, okay, we have to get into the political sphere, right? We have to um, build some political power. We have to get some of these politicians to be a little bit more beholden to labor. Um, and, and part of that is he, he's not exactly, you know, a hundred percent wrong. I mean, he was doing this on the ground organizing that was super effective and then there was, you know, the Congress put through a law that would make, you know, all that organizing illegal. Um, and they, they, you know, overturned a veto. Um, that's how much support they had. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's not wrong to think that, okay, well, fuck, we kind of have to, we got to gain some control in that sphere a little bit. Um, so he kind of pivots to 
moving in that direction a little bit. Um, it's hard to say that it's entirely, oh, it's wrong and shouldn't have done it. But like, you know, it, it probably there were other strategies we probably could have pursued in tandem if Walter did not let his personal um, adversarial relationships get in the way, which yeah. seem, seems like what happened. Yep. Um, what, uh, what specific time frame are we looking at here, like within a couple of years? Okay, so we're going to be anywhere from, you know, about the late 1949. There's going to be a few points in my notes here that do touch on the 60s, but we will be getting into the 60s, I think, uh, in the next episode. Um, so this will go, you know, pretty much right through the 50s. Not the most relevant thing in the world, but a point that I think is interesting to touch on during this time period, at the very least, is that this was a time where in the developed world, uh, communists were a lot politer. Um, it really wasn't. Well, I won't say this definitively because I'm not the most well-read on it, but a handful of things that I've read have touched on the fact that it was around the time of the Cuban Revolution and Che Guevara trying to sort of, like, export a lot of more revolutionary politics. But, like, even to go back a little bit further, like, when the United Fruit Company went and decided that they were a government in South America, up until around, like, the 50s or early 60s, a lot of communists really did have the attitude of like you organized and you voted, but you never there was no insurrectionary or really revolutionary politic in America. Mm -hmm. Even a lot of the like CPUSA stuff was pushing heavily towards. Or and I, I bring this up partially because I think it's an interesting period in the Communist Party of America, but partially because like. I understand that in like the 50s when Walter Ruther is being successful and defeating his communist opponents, uh, those communists probably were a little bit softer towards him than they should have been. Mm -hmm. Okay, they were 100% softer towards him than they should have been, <laughs> but because there was a precedent for, you know, just, I won't say politeness because there were communists in the South who were having to like beat the shit out of racists and like gun them down because you know, clan members were trying to gun them down. But at the end of the day, like when you're discussing something more overtly political, yeah, man, communists would be like, okay, well you outvoted me, but I'm going to get you this next round. And it mm -hmm. took a little while to realize that the cards were stacked against them. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, that's one of the things that I, I kind of like about this story of Walter Ruther is I just think you kind of look from his perspective and I'm like, it's hard to say that like, Oh, he was 100% totally wrong. It's like, well, I see how we got here. I, I can understand. I think he was wrong, but I get why it happened the way it did. You kind of see where it's like, it's a failing and it's a shortcoming, but like you see how it happened and you can see it today. The same sorts of things play out. You're like, yeah, this is humanity is imperfect. And even when we think, you know, our theory is correct. World's fucking complicated. I mean, mm -hmm. reasonable people can disagree on tactics. And I mean, the left is a perfect example of that. I think a lot of people on the left think that like, if you disagree, you're unreasonable. But the truth is, reasonable people can very much disagree. What we have, you know, the battle that we're facing is difficult. Just plain and simple. It's fucking difficult. The odds are stacked against us. And so, yeah, people are going to have different approaches to that. I personally don't feel the need to disagree because I have the immortal science on my side. Exactly. 
<laughs> Thank you. I, I did that just for you, Mike. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that's kind of the big picture. There was something I did want to mention about the Taft-Hartley Act that I don't think I saw it in my notes, so I may have left this out. So I wanted to actually touch on this too, because we did see this kind of throughout the 20th century a little bit. One of the things that Taft-Hartley did was it gave presidents the power to stop strikes by declaring a quote-unquote national emergency. So what this would do is they'd have their national emergency and it would be followed by an 80-day quote-unquote cooling-off period where strikes were not allowed. So basically, a president could be like, oh, this is a fucking emergency. No strikes for 80 days. We Mm -hmm. just can't do it. And so this isn't just like an abstract thing that was in the law. Like, it was literally used. So I've got notes here that it was used by Eisenhower, Nixon, Bush, and several others. So Wow, I'm going to write up a declaration that U.S. presidents can suck my dick. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. But again, it is noteworthy that, and it's something we have to keep in mind is that like, we want to build labor power, but like they have tools in their toolbox. They can be like, oh, there's no strikes allowed. And what do we do when that happens? I mean, you got to remember that like, we can be very effective and we might make huge gains, but like, it's going to become more difficult. The more gains we make, the more likely it is they're going to use these kinds of tools against us. Like when we're weak, they'll let shit slide. But when we are strong, they're going to use every tool they can. And we have to understand, like, what do we do? I mean, we're playing a game of chicken and we kind of can't yield. So, you know, sometimes that might mean, yeah, hey, we're going to we're about to lose some protections. This is going to become an illegal strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's scary. You know, people got families and shit. That's that's rough. So, like, while we're cheering on the labor struggles of today, you know, still a bunch of strikes going and we've seen a lot of gains coming they've still got more that they can put on us and it's going to get hard is, is really just what I'm saying. And here's where I'm going to chime in that uh, nearly going on strike won my union things like me working the 75 hour work week. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So kind of into the 1950s, Walter is now obviously president of the UAW. So he's now leading the union. He's already done his, Uh, purge of the communists in the CIO unions. So all the bad shit happened, but Walter's doing pretty well, right? So this is kind of him getting his way. So that's kind of where we're starting off here. Now, as president of the UAW, Ruther negotiated contracts with, you know, mostly the big three. Uh, He negotiated contracts that included unprecedented standard of living increases for automobile workers. Uh, Such increases include annual raises based on productivity advances which is good, cost of living increases, supplementary unemployment benefits, also very good, early retirement options, and health and welfare benefits. So a lot of, yeah, all good stuff. I mean, big wins, this is good shit. Now, he employed a strategy that was called pattern bargaining against the big three automobile manufacturers, which were General Motors, Ford Motor Company, and Chrysler. He would first target a company that seemed most likely to accept his bargaining objective. If that target company refused to offer concessions, Ruther would threaten a strike to halt production at its plants only while allowing production operations at its competitors' plants to go uninterrupted. Now, as a result, the target company would accept Ruther's demands, usually, to prevent its competitors from absorbing its sales and market share. Once he secured the initial agreement, 
He would use it as a pattern against the other automobile companies, threatening strike if they did not match the same terms to which the initial target company agreed. So if you're all following, I mean, basically, he goes after one company and says, hey, we're only going to strike you. So mm-hmm. your competitors are going to be unscathed by this and it's going to look real bad for you and they're going to get your sales. So, of course, this puts them in a position where they've got competition to think about. And so a lot of times they would go ahead and agree to what the union wanted. Then, of course, Walter would take that and be like, hey, this is what we're getting over here. You got to match it or you're getting fucked. So honestly, I really like his tactics against businesses. It's his tactics against other leftists I find questionable. Yeah, I mean, this was undeniably this was a good strategy. This was funny is that Brandon, you could you could say they're questionable, but it seems like they're undeniable that in both cases they worked. It's just that we don't like the ones they use against leftists. And then they also ended up (laughs) fucking himself in the end. So we kind of have the last laugh, although because we want just better lives for people, it hurts us anyway. So it's like it's one of those pure victories. But go ahead. Yeah, I get the last laugh during my 75 hour work week. Exactly. Um, All right. So Ruther employed pattern bargaining to leverage competition among automobile manufacturers, maximize the influence of labor and reduce the frequency of costly strikes. So while competition within the capitalist markets often works against workers, which is usually the case, uh, it's vital that we understand that competition can be used to our advantage if we use our leverage. This strategy, like many others, is helped by the public knowing what is happening. So like that kind of media blitz, letting people know what's happening is important. Could this be a way to use some of the louder politicians to get the word out more effectively? You know, we don't currently have any labor leaders with the same reach that Walter had or any other big famous labor leaders. We don't really have that at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this a time that we use like a progressive politician or something to get that word out? How do we get our message really loud? Is it by social media? I mean, that's part of it, but that only goes so far. You know, what our little communist car page says on Instagram is not hitting your average American family. It's just not. So nobody's going on strike because we call for a general strike here at Turn Leftist, you know? Yup. That's, and so that's kind of the thing. And so like, as much as I don't like this, oh, we should engage in bourgeois politics. I agree and disagree. It's like, we should use it for the benefits that we can get from it, but not like it's going to actually change anything. It, it, it's not. You use it as a platform, perhaps, to like talk about strikes and to make certain people beholden to labor's demands. We use There's bourgeois tools we politics can... to demonstrate the inefficacy of bourgeois politics. Well, yeah, I mean, that's you do what you have to do, but like get the fucking bullhorn, get the word out. You know, I'm not making too many... Um, I'm not going to have a problem as long as people know that these strikes are happening and people start to give a shit again. Mm-hmm. I don't really care. And, you know, if you're a music artist or whatever, we could use some union music because that used to be a fucking thing back in the day. I, I don't hear, you know, um, pick a popular artist today. I don't hear Taylor Swift coming out with like union songs. Yeah. Again, I'm not a musician. I can't do that. But that's the kind of thing that I think we need. We need to foster like, I mean, in all seriousness, actual- Lumineers, where are you at with the new? I don't know who was the guy. Um, Woody Guthrie was it? Woody Guthrie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where are you yeah. guys at with the new um, Solidarity songs? Like Solidarity Forever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. we're singing hundred-year-old songs. Yeah. It's yeah. time for it's an all hands on deck kind of situation, I think. And, and so, to me, 
just using that kind of like, we need to be creative about how we get information out there. And sometimes it might be not our favorite way to do it, but like, doesn't matter. Get the word out. Most people didn't know that there was a strike at Kellogg's. Yeah. Or Nabisco. Most people didn't know that there was a strike at John Deere. How many people know that the John Deere workers won? I was literally about to bring that up. I've been talking with people about the John Deere strike recently, like people that are at least vocally political on some level, and they just didn't know it was happening. You know, people who consider themselves politically active and, you know, mostly liberal politics, but still, they just had no idea. They're like, oh, what is this? I'm like, John Deere strikers are like 10,000 John Deere workers are on strike right now. They just no clue. It's over because they won. Yeah, they yeah. won they rejected they... two contracts before they won two. They didn't yeah, no. give up easy. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to them about like, you know, right when it happened and throughout that entire process. And yeah, they just hadn't heard anything. And I'm sure they haven't heard that they won at this point. Those well, same so people that I spoke to before. And part of the problem with that is like, you've got people crossing picket lines because they don't know that there's picket lines. Yeah. Like how yeah. you can't, people don't know. And there was a time when, there were liberals and even some conservatives that just wouldn't cross a picket line. We need to get back to that. I mean, people need to know. And so I don't really give a shit if it's Bernie Sanders or AOC who fucking talks about a strike. I don't give a fuck. Talk about a strike. You know, the word's got to get out. Literally just say these people are striking. Like that's it. You just need awareness. Like as corny as that is like, it's people just need to know that it's happening at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. One of my like favorite just stupid things that I hear all the time is like, oh, well, in socialist countries, the state controls the media and the news. And I'm like, (laughs) motherfucker, do you like look around you? (laughs) The state controls our media. They just do it through capital. If we had real news sources in the U.S., then these enormous strikes that really work in favor of workers would probably get like somewhere between any press at all and like good press. Yeah. But instead yeah. what we get is like the last page of a newspaper or like a 3 a.m. like mention on some 24 hour news network. Like, no, we don't get real representation. Yeah. No. And so that's, that's kind of the point I'm making here is just like, and Walter was good about doing this, but Walter also had a position that he could get the word out. And there was a time in this country where that was possible. So just something to think about is, we do need to think of ways to like amplify our messaging. Now I did want to talk about something I did see again, social media, but something kind of clever that I think is somewhat related to this strategy of pattern bargaining. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the uh, movement to specifically strike McDonald's and to convince people to not work for McDonald's specifically though. Yeah. I've seen a little bit about that. I don't know too much about it though. You know, again, I haven't seen that much and I don't know if this particular movement will be very effective, but it's like it has the potential to be the idea being you want to convince people not to work at a particular company, in this case, McDonald's, until they have a minimum wage of twenty five dollars an hour. So, you know, don't shop there. Don't work there. If you work there, try and quit work somewhere else. And it's this idea that right now, especially with this quote unquote labor shortage, they want to focus that shortage onto one company. Mm -hmm. So while wages are currently going up, if we can boycott one particular company, we can amplify the force. Whereas like if you're like, oh, let's boycott all fast food, that's crazy. But if you do it to one company, that is something that consumers can easily get on board with. 
right? Like, don't buy any Kellogg's. That's like 8,000 different cereals. But if it's just like, hey, don't work at McDonald's, that's something that's possible. And so, like, if you really do create an artificial labor shortage for that company, they're going to have to increase wages to get people to work for them. So I've never considered a, this, but like that is actually brilliant. And it, yeah. it's why I won't wholesale condemn Walter Ruther, because in a certain way, that's what he was doing by targeting strikes against certain people. But yeah, right exactly. now, if you say, hey, don't shop from or work at McDonald's on its face, it almost seems innocuous. But like if you still continue eating out at fast food and suddenly Burger King's fucking revenue doubles and McDonald's sees that while they're having to close stores due to like employee shortages, that fucking rules. Yeah. And so uh, the reason I, I call this out is just because I'm like, I'm looking at the past and I'm like, hey, this actually does look kind of familiar. This is an idea that we can take into the 21st century. And this is something you can spread on social media. There are, you know, celebrities who could theoretically even get on board. You know, a celebrity says something like this. Again, like you said, Brandon, it seems fairly innocuous. It doesn't feel like, oh, that's socialist activity, but it is. And when that one company has that, oh, we're now a minimum of $25 an hour. Why the fuck are you working at Burger King? Why the fuck are you working anywhere else? You're trying to work at McDonald's now. Yeah. It increases wages for the entire industry. So it's just something I saw. I wanted to mention it. I thought, hey, this is the kind of outside the box thinking that is, I think, something that we could take with us going forward. Yeah, real quick. Shout out to Danny DeVito for being a fucking real one. <laughs> right? Speaking out about this exact thing. Oh, did he? Yeah, he. Which one? Oh, god damn it! And now I I'm love gonna Danny. Which he's one? The best. He's the fucking. He spoke best. out. He spoke out specifically, like in support of a union strike that was going on recently, and I'm forgetting which one it was now because there's been quite a few recently. Was but, that the um, where he lost his blue check over it in Twitter? Yes. Like, no, no, that was simply a mistake. That yeah. Incidentally, was when he called in favor of unions. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Nabisco union support, yep. Yeah. So yeah, he yeah, temporarily cool. lost Twitter verification after tweeting out support for the Nabisco striking workers. Dude, like you said, shout out to a real one. Yeah. All right, getting back into it. Although presidents of much smaller unions, and also big ones, but presidents of other unions were making three to four times his salary, Ruther purposely kept his salary low to stay in touch and show solidarity with UAW members he represented. Fail. Now, he never made <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a fail. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, a little bit, and we'll we'll kind of get into that in just a minute. So he never made an annual salary. I got one in the of chamber more... waiting for him, like waiting for the conversation <laughs> okay. about him staying in touch with the workers. But but say your piece, please continue. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um. So he never made an annual salary of more than thirty one thousand dollars. Author David Halberstam writes. His life was not about material things. The constant success of the union was reward enough. Now, that's not a small amount of money. I just want to be very fucking clear. That's not that's not chump change. Uh, so I don't want to go overboard with the praise here. But one, I want to say, fuck these other union leaders that were pocketing tons of money and getting fuck all for their workers. Mm -hmm. This does seem like a problem that we should deal with going forward because it's really not a good look for labor leaders making more than many capitalists. So they might be a little bit too invested in the status quo. So yeah. that is a problem. I actually did look this up in the inflation calculator and uh, $31,000 a year is $232,000 a year. Whoa, today. shit. 
So, yeah, that's not chump change, right? Now, I, I will be clear about this. I think the man worked hard, and he literally put his life on the line. Him and his brother and his fucking family, they were under threat. He deserves the world for that. But $232,000 to, to stay in touch, it's like, okay, I thought about, like, what if I made $232,000 a year? I would have, I don't know, four Nissan GTRs. I would own, I, I, like, I'm just like, I would own every old JDM shitbox I could have. I'd get a drift car that I could do wall taps with and not give a fuck. Just like, oh, yeah. Not only would you own those, if one came up, you would just buy it without question. Be like, oh, yeah, that's a nice one. I think I'll have it. Like, it wouldn't even be a question. Oh, just no. Again, like right now, two Jay-Z's are fucking crazy, stupid expensive. They're like 12 grand, right? I would do Jay-Z swaps on everything. Everything you could. You could afford it for $232,000. Dude, my yard would be a parking lot. So I would Jay-Z swap my friends' cars for shits and giggles. The more money you make, the more trashy you are. <laughs> it's just a um, big yard to put more cars in. That's all you get. <laughs> well, so my point being, if you're trying to stay in touch, uh, this is probably not the best way to do it. But <laughs> the disturbing fact here is that at three to four times that, I'm like, so these other labor leaders of oftentimes smaller unions even are making yeah. close to a million dollars every year. That's what I was thinking that too. That like, is a fucking problem. Fuck those guys. <laughs> Fuck those yeah. guys. And this would be like probably a bit of a tangent, but you want to hear something related in the modern world that I'm dealing Ooh, with right we're, now? We're not okay with tangents here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never do Go tangents. <laughs> so my union recently ex- voted in and accepted the contract that we got that was widely regarded as dog shit bad. Yeah. So I've accepted the role of the person who needs to discuss with everyone the fact that we have three years to make the next contract hurt them bad. And I'm finding a lot of people to be very receptive, but like I'm fairly new to the union and I'm having to talk to people who have been doing this for like two or three, five, even 10 years. Like from the beginning of the film industry in this city, like there weren't a lot of people, but it's, you find more and more people who have been in the union for two or three years, but like when you find someone who's been in from anywhere from five to 10, those are the fucking old heads and they know the routine. And I had one of those dudes school me in a very constructive way this week where he informed me that our union representatives make little to no money from the union. Does that sound like a good thing, right? No. No, it sounds awful. They're heading up departments. So, they're the people who are making two or three hundred thousand dollars a year and getting little to nothing from the union itself. But what that does yeah. is it creates a circumstance where when people want to stand up and say, like, we're not happy with the way this is going, you're our representative. What the fuck? What it does is make you a target. You get blacklisted so that when a job comes up, if you get called, you're one of the last people called because you pissed off. The president, who is also the head of the fucking construction department. And it doesn't it make the union representatives more beholden to like the production companies and where yes. they're getting their money yeah. from than the union itself? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we're currently talking like, what is the wage that we can like, what can we do to make it so that our president is no longer working? And to me, 
that sounds fucking psychotic. But on yeah. it, like, but it's real. Like you kind of have to take them off of the floor to some extent because when their income is based on working, suddenly, yeah, like you just said, Zach, they're beholden to the companies that are paying us. We're yeah. trying to figure out like how much can we like reasonably offer the heads of our union so that they are no longer beholden to the companies that are producing and beholden to the employees. Because we want to be able to say, this is not right, do something about it, and be heard instead of no longer getting hired. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, keep That's a like, sticky situation. Yeah, it's, it's a fucked up balance, because we're saying, like, yo, if we offer them, like, a hundred grand a year, which we would have to work our absolute fucking... That's what I would make if I'm routinely working 60-hour weeks. Can we offer these people that for probably doing 20 hours worth of work a week, but it's still half yeah. of what they would make doing what they're doing now? Yeah. That's fucked. Yeah. I mean, that's a structural issue, and there's a part of me that, like, wants to know, what does it take to start a new union? Like, how do we start rival unions that could be like, hey, we're not going to do that. We're going to be talking- not that. I don't know. I've gone into this union with people not really knowing my politics and me keeping it semi-secretive for a reason so that I can gauge people's response to certain statements. And, you know, sometimes you like a dude this week that I was expecting to be very reactionary was pretty fucking receptive to some offhanded remarks that I made. And by the end of the week, him and I were discussing, like, what can we do so that in three years, the next contract that we get offered hurts the people that offered it to us. Like we want to, we want to make the money that we're making and not have to work 80 hours a week to make it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. I I was actually going to encourage you at some point, like, you know, get yourself settled in, but you should try and run for something in that union. If you can, I mean, already talking about it. Sweet. Fucking sweet. It sucks because it means that you have to work your ass off so hard that everyone around you says that motherfucker busts his ass. I have his back. Yeah. Like it, dude, it sucks. I've heard other people say it. I know that there's like a big, like anti-work. I've heard a bunch of communists like, man, I'm going to put communists in scare quotes for this statement. Like, I don't want to work. I want to be a communist. I want like, whatever. I, I don't know. No. If you're in a shop that is not just somehow incredibly fucking left if you're going to be a communist or anarchist in that shop, you need to be the hardest working motherfucker in there. Mm -hmm. You need to be the dude that people look to for answers or, Oh, I need a hand. Never say no to helping somebody. And then after you've established yourself, when that like real piece of shit that everyone knows is a piece of shit asks for help, you say no. But when somebody who is even maybe on your side asks for a hand, you do the work for them because you want to be the guy that like, Everyone comes to so that when you can get a position that you can help people, you get fucking voted in and you hold the bosses to account. Possibly unpopular opinion because it involves working your fucking ass off. But like, let's be realistic. If you're left at all, you're not working for a better future for yourself right now. You're working for a future at all for future generations. I think also like there's a difference between busting your ass so that the boss gets more profits or that you get a promotion or whatever. And then just helping out your coworkers and being helpful and knowledgeable about whatever it is that you do. And that struggle's real. 
I've been yeah, on, yeah. like, I don't always have an answer for, for that. I mean, generally speaking, I'm one of those people who works their ass off. I'm there to help, whatever. Um, and I do, you know, I will say some things that like people are like, oh, wow, you know, ooh, it's risque or whatever. But it's like, well, yeah, but I'm the one who's not slacking off. So like, what does that say? But I'm all for anti-work post-revolution in the nice world that we're going to build. But mm-hmm. building our way to it is probably going to involve a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it depends on the situation, I think. But in, in a lot of cases, especially in a union place, you, you got to work your ass off. And, you know, in my, in my position, if I slack off, I'm not inconveniencing the company. I'm inconveniencing about eight other people who have to pick up my slack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely noteworthy. Um, I think that's a good I think that's a good approach. You know, it, it depends on the situation, um, but especially in a union place or a place that could become union. You know. Be the be the hard worker if you can. If you are capable of doing it, be that. Because like, then people can't attack you with that shit. Oh, you just want free stuff. You're lazy. Really? <laughs> can't mm-hmm. say it about certain people. All joking aside, my move for a long time has been to work my fucking ass off. Work every hour of overtime offered volunteer for overtime if it makes other people's life easier. And then like once you've established yourself as like one of the hardest working people around, be like, yeah, you guys know I'm a communist, right? Like I'm doing this for you, not them. Mm -hmm. And you start introducing the talking points where suddenly people are like, well, I always thought that like your people were kind of pieces of shit, but like actually you're a solid fucking dude. Let's hear what you got to say. Does it work every time? No, it works like 20% of the time. But 20% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> you, you, essentially, you want to be a good ambassador for your ideas, is yes. I think what it comes down to. Yeah. No, uh, you, are, you, you put that way better than I ever was ever going to. First time I've ever done that. I'm hammered right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, you want to represent your beliefs in a way that is positive. I do my best. So, yeah, anyway, that's kind of where we were with what these unions were making and all that. As problematic as it was, whatever. Walter did purposely not make nearly as much money as he could have. So, look, credit to him. He was doing very well, but credit where credit is due. Now, he did absolutely win pretty big gains for the working class during this time. Uh, Yeah, Brandon. This is a weird point to make, I think, in some ways. But like, what did you say that his adjusted income was like 230? Yeah, around 230. Something worth mentioning is that uh, inflation calculators are helpful to a certain extent, but to another extent, they're bullshit. Because I don't know what your average, uh, say, truck driver makes right now. I would guess like 50 to 80. Yeah, it's about right. Adjusted for inflation. In the 80s, truck drivers were making well over $100,000 a year. They actually, they were making more than I believe. Like, in real terms, they were. I bring that up specifically because, yeah, he was setting a good example. And maybe 230 sounds like a fuck ton of money for then, adjusted for inflation, it sounds like a, a lot of money. But it's entirely possible that, like, your average middle class worker was making close to or around six figures. That's true. Well, that's I true. I mean, it has to do with just the stagnation of wages since the 70s. Yeah. You know, your average worker isn't making much more than 
or even less uh, than in the 70s today. Yeah, in the context of the time, $230,000 a year could be just above median income for the nation. I think it's what you're saying. Is it like 232000 or whatever it was specifically might not have even been above anyone else, really. It's like how a CEO used to make like 15 times more than your average worker, but now they make like 500 times more. Right. Yeah. Like maybe he was making two or even three times what the workers were making, but that was still pretty much nothing compared to the people making 10 and 20 times as much. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, it all depends on the cost of living and everything, and, and things do change. So yeah, there's a certain amount of bullshit that the inflation calculator probably is. The problem with nuance is that there's so fucking much of it. (laughs) Yeah. Now, anyway, so we know that Walter won pretty big gains for the working class during this time. This was a prosperous time for the U.S. economy in general, uh, and workers were sharing part of that prosperity due in part to Walter's efforts and the labor movement as a whole. However, it is important to understand that more radical elements were demanding more, and given the general prosperity, getting more seems like it was a very real possibility. So maybe we could have done better. Now, immediately after the war, left-wing elements demanded, quote-unquote, 30-40, which is a 30-hour work week for 40 hours pay. Now, Ruther rejected the 30-40 deal and decided to concentrate on total annual wages, displaying uh, a new corporatist mentality that accepted management's argument uh, that shorter hours conflicted with wage increases, and other job benefits, and abandoning the old confrontational syndicalist position that shorter hours drove up wages and protected against unemployment. I think they were right about that, though. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the shorter hours would create almost a little bit of a quote-unquote labor shortage that does drive up wages, and it gives people, you know, the ability to actually fucking live a life. So Walter did not agree, and he pursued a different path, which, you know, at the time may have looked like pretty comparable. Oh, well, we should actually just fight for more money and these other benefits. But I think in hindsight, we can look back and go, yeah, probably would have been better to go with these shorter work hours. You know, just think about, you know, how the quality of life for millions. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the whole like macroeconomic consequences of that, but like my life would be a lot better if I could work 30 hours. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would have improved the lives of millions of fucking people unequivocally. It would have been great. So how much the threat of employment could have been reduced? I also just point out how catchy the 30-40 thing is. That's so easy. It's just like, we want 40 hours pay for 30 hours of work, or whatever it is. It's fucking, it's so simple. It's so easy. I think we could go back in time now. We could literally do that right now. It's like, hey, we have a chance to do it again, right? Mm -hmm. We saw where the first path led. We can now start asking for 40 hours pay for 30 hours work. That can be the new battleground. I think Brandon mentioned it earlier when he was just talking about working 75 hours a week. Like there's no amount of money that makes up for that time. You can get higher wages. No matter how much money you give me, I can't buy back the week that I lost. Yeah. Like if you work 30 hours for 40 hours pay, that's better than working 40 hours for higher pay. I would rather take the 30 hours at 40 hours pay. Like, that's my life. That's my time. I would happily work 50 hours right now for 75 hours pay. Yeah. (laughs) I think my favorite version of that was the, um, 
42069 plan. Yeah, yes. four days a week, 20 hours a week, 69 hours or 69 dollars per hour. So catchy. As much as it's a joke, I mean, not bad. That's like, yeah. hey, that should be the battleground. <laughs> I mean, that would actually bring us like in line with what productivity has done over the last 50 years. So, exactly. Yeah. If anything, maybe a little below it still. I'm so I mean, goddamn angry that 42069 makes so much fucking sense in this context. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, that's a great thing to like build support around. You know, everybody loves the meme numbers. We can I get know. so much support for that. Hey, funny that's numbers. True. That work week sounds really nice. Yeah, I'm with it. And what workers like generally actually work in an eight hour day right now? Isn't it like less than six hours? I think it was about specifically like office workers, but I read something that was like, you know, in your standard eight hour workday, there's only like four to six hours of labor being done. Mm-hmm. And the other time yeah. is just not working. It's so like, let's condense that. Like, let me go home. I'll do my work for four hours and then like, let me leave. I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah, that would be nice. Job work. We call them eight for tens or 10 for 12s where they need 12 hours worth of work done and you hustle, you bust your fucking ass and you get it done in nine or 10 hours and you go home. Our bosses don't pay the same way. They don't have to know that we got that work done in a fraction of the amount of time because of the way everything is structured. But at the end of the day, it's only proof that it's bullshit that like, like you have the money to pay us for the amount of work. Why are you asking us to stay for three or four hours longer just so that you can feel like you got more for your money? Like, no, we did the work. Yeah, it's fucked up. I'm somehow angrier inside of a union than I ever was before. (laughs) I mean, that's where it starts. That's where it's like, okay, you can kind of see where it's like, all right, I now see why this is weak. I see why this isn't working. That's a powerful place to be. You know, it's important to see how how dysfunctional it actually is. It's pretty weak. So I'm just like, yes, this is awesome. But I'm also furious. How can we make this 300% more good? That should be, if you run for anything in the union, that should be your, like, slogan. 300% more good. (laughs) I think more gooder would be better. (laughs) I think it would be more gooder. I think more better is gooder. Yeah. There you go. We'll we'll figure it out. So, um, as president of the CIO which uh, Walter was elected to in 1952, following the death of the previous president. As the president of the CIO, Ruther sought to remove officers from communist-dominated unions within the CIO. Uh, In response, Trude, which is T-R-U-D, a Soviet newspaper called Ruther a traitor and strike breaker and a favorite of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Nice. Uh, (laughs) which is similar to what more radical opponents of Walter within the UAW had said about him. So it was pretty spot on. I desperately need you to link that Soviet newspaper commenting on that. I love, I want to read more about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the Republican party called Ruther the most dangerous man in America and a communist, despite removing communists from the labor movement, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, who we're also familiar with, never stopped labeling Ruther a communist for working in Russia and having early associations with communists and socialists. During World War II, Hoover considered subjecting Ruther and his brothers, Victor and Roy, 
to custodial detention, which is basically just straight up imprisoning them for no reason, which this is an important point here. Remember, the Constitution doesn't mean anything when you challenge those in power. Rank-and-file union members need to be taught this going forward. No more of this silly reverence for a scrap of parchment that has no meaning the moment it might grant any meaningful freedom to working people. Not educating members about this truth constitutes a serious disservice to those union members. You can see it today. All these union members who, like, literally think that, oh, this is all fine, but it's like... No, it's not. Fuck the Constitution. Like, we should stop pretending like, well, the Constitution's good. and so No, it's not. It's garbage. Fuck it. Fuck it. We'll try yeah. a new Things one. The Constitution is really good for. Like when I'm out of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, anytime and, people are surprised when companies don't play by the rules and when they work hand in hand with the state, you know, they're having backdoor yep. meetings that you can't prove. It's like, how are you surprised by this at this point? Like, you just haven't learned enough history, I guess. Yeah. Bryant had Brian something does. to say. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I've been reading uh, Hammer and Ho, and there's a lot of that shit going on, where it's like, this is blatantly unconstitutional what they're doing, but, you know, they just got away with it, because, you know, their enemies are communists or whatever. Yep. And, or black, for that matter. Hammer and yep. Ho is a fucking amazing book. I love it. Yeah. Like, it's a little bit dry, I gotta say, but, like, it's worth the read. Everything I read is very dry. It's the nature of leftism. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, I will say October by China Mieville. That's a good read. That's not dry or boring or anything. That's a good one. Check that out. It's it's a history of the 1917 revolution. But yeah, like there's this weird expectation that workers play by the rules when the bosses don't have to, and I think we really need to overcome that reasoning. Mm, There's there are no rules. There is exploitation, and there is overcoming that. Yeah. And this is this is kind of why, again, um, I didn't do it this time, but I, I probably will the next time. Uh, those questions I, I keep listing off because I think they're important. The question on like legality is like, I don't think we should be playing by the rules anymore. That doesn't mm-hmm. seem to work. <laughs> and I mean, really, all the horrible things that people did to uh, unions back in the day. I mean, they shot at members. They sprayed them with freezing water and all that. And again, the thing that actually crippled unions more than anything else was this fucking piece of shit scrap of paper. A legal fiction is what really did us in. And I think we need to understand that we cannot be allowing legal fictions to dictate what workers are entitled to. If there's anything I'll give anarchists credit for is that they really caught on to the whole like not playing by the rules thing a lot earlier than the rest of the left did. Yeah, I think Marxists and anarchists really need to kind of blend a lot of their projects together. I like, I really, I think there's a way to work those two together in a way that is like actually complete. If we could stop bickering for long enough to do it, of course, which is <laughs> questionable. <laughs> that chance. Room for bickering, but we're not even close to the point where that's the issue. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap in the two and I think uh, we need to start kind of, exploring that overlap and making it fucking work um, instead of splitting parties over and over again and whatever else we're doing, you know. Anyway, this brings us to the merge of the AFL and the CIO. So this was a pretty big moment in labor history. Uh, and obviously, Walter plays a huge role in this. In December of 1955, the two rival trade union federations, the AFL and the CIO, merged into a single federation. Walter was elected president of the CIO in 1952, 
and began conversations with the rival federation to smooth over their differences for the good of the labor movement. Many of the reasons organizations had originally split over had actually started to fade away anyway. The AFL had not only embraced industrial organizing, which they were originally against, but they included industrial unions, such as the International Association of Machinists, that had become almost as large as the UAW or the Steelworkers. At the time of the merge, the UAW was the largest single union, representing around 1.2 million members. So, Ruther succeeded uh, Murray, who died in 1952 uh, as head of the CIO. William Green, who had headed the AFL since the 1920s, died the same month. So, Ruther began discussing a merger of the two organizations with George Meany, Green's successor as head of the AFL the next year. So, pretty much right away, they started talking merge. Now, the AFL had a number of advantages in these negotiations. It was, for one thing, twice the size of the CIO. The CIO was, for its part, once again facing internal rivalries that threatened to seriously weaken it. Ruther was spurred toward merger by threats from David J. McDonald, Murray's successor as president of the Steelworkers, uh, who disliked Ruther intensely, insulted him publicly, and flirted with disaffiliation from the CIO. While Ruther set out a number of conditions for the merger with the AFL, such as constitutional provisions supporting industrial unionism, uh, guarantees against racial discrimination, and internal procedures to clean up corrupt unions, which were apparently a huge problem in the American Federation of Labor, his weak bargaining position forced him to compromise most of these demands. Although the unions that made up the CIO survived, and in some cases as members of the newly created AFL-CIO, the CIO as an organization was folded into the AFL-CIO's Industrial Union Department. So basically, you know, the way this works out is George Meany and Walter Ruther start discussing uh, merger. They both got pressures to merge, right? So, so the merge is going to happen, but there is a negotiation process involved. The AFL is reactionary and kind of shitty, and they're just, they do not have Walter's broad vision for the working class, right? So again, the thing we can kind of credit Walter for having is more than just caring about the workers he represented. You know, he was for racial equality and gender equality and, you know, actual real safety nets for working people in general. Uh, whereas George Meany, not the case. Didn't give a fuck. Yeah, I remember you saying he was kind of a piece of shit. He's kind of a piece of shit. And uh, unfortunately, in these negotiations, he had all the power, right? So he represented more people. He was the powerful one. And that's just the way it's going to be. You know what I mean? So he goes into the, there's a power imbalance in these negotiations and it's pretty fucking clear. So unfortunately, Walter has to kind of capitulate on a lot of stuff. There's nothing he really could have done uh, in this case. Anyway, the AFL-CIO is, is now made up of 56 national and international labor unions with about 12.5 million members at that time. Now, part of the reason for the merge was to make certain political activities uh, a bit easier. In the wake of the Taft-Hartley Act, unions needed to find new ways to make gains for their members. Increasing their presence in the political sphere was thought to be one way of achieving this. They used their influence to get Democrats to help them win concessions for workers. The unions always had some influence with the Democratic Party, which is part of the reason that, you know, Michigan Governor Frank Murphy didn't break the sit-down strike at GM, right? If you remember that, he mm -hmm. really could have fucked that up. 
he didn't because he was a little bit beholden to labor. But the passing of the Taft-Hartley Act over the veto of President Truman was seen as a huge betrayal. And union leaders decided they needed to take political action to regain control uh, within the Democratic Party. By making one large union federation, they could centralize political funding through political action committees or PACs. And they could coordinate messaging for congressional hearings and TV and radio appearances. And, and that's something you kind of see today where like Republicans is like stupid as their messaging is like it's just objectively fucking dumb but they all toe the line. They all mm. say the same thing. And unfortunately, it fucking works really, really well. Whereas you see Democrats have dog shit messaging. No one gives a fuck. I mean, they suck, obviously, but like their messaging is dog shit. You know, liberals are just Democrats like are on message is when it's a Republican message. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, precisely. And, and so, you know, the idea of like centralizing some of this messaging is kind of important. And we as the left need to kind of learn from that. I think I don't know the answer, obviously. Okay, again, I'm an idiot. Just I'm talking on a fucking podcast. But if you're listening <laughs> to this, start thinking, be like, hey, wait, how can I take what this idiot just said and like turn it into something instead of haphazard bullshit? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we're obviously doing what we think is the best thing or the most effective thing that we know of. It's like we have podcasts, we have meme pages, whatever it is that we're doing to try to the best I can think of personally is just repeat the same messaging over and over again as many times and as many ways as you yep. can so you can reach as many people as possible because that's what the right seems to be doing. Like, yeah. I have no shortage of all the right-wing arguments in my back pocket because I've heard them a million fucking times from a million different yep. people because they're very good at just being the NPCs repeating the script and I'm just I'm trying to get a script out there to counteract that. That's all we can do. Yeah. No, and I, I just, I genuinely think, I'm like, I don't know, maybe we someone's got to create a a fucking discord or something of just like all the big accounts and hey you can talk about whatever the fuck else you want but here's your three fucking talking points for today like just just put these three out some way somehow share this one meme who cares what are we pushing today what is the left need what is our culture war thing it would help if you we know? had think tanks too like if we had yeah the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation and Chamber of Commerce and, you know, the American Enterprise Institute and the Cato Institute and like every other think tank in the world yeah. like, with millions of dollars in funding behind them. That would be much easier to do because you have like literally just boards of people who do nothing but think of these talking points and disseminate them among the population. But there's no profit in that for the left. So that's why we can't do it. Like. How, how much longer can Radio Free Asia be something you cite credibly? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> forever. For, they'll, they'll cite it forever. It'll never stop. <laughs> I came across a news story this past week, and I'm like, this seems questionable. And their only source? Fucking Radio Free Asia. Mm. <laughs> yeah, if we had, like, you know, the full power of the CIA propaganda machine behind us, I think we could accomplish a lot more. But unfortunately, that's, that's true. That's it's true. almost like uh, the left needs to organize a little better. Hold on, maybe we need our own CIA. I'm taking a wildly different approach where I don't even consider Twitter celebrities, but I talk to my coworkers and figure out which <laughs> ones are more radical that I want to ally myself with and how we can push our agenda. Nice. Call me crazy. That's the good way to do it. <laughs> it's painfully slow. Yeah, it always is. So uh, anyway, another uh, another reason for the merge uh, was that these dipshits were actually competing for existing union members. And this competition was stopping growth for the labor movement. 
So they were doing union raids on each other's memberships, which might be okay if they were actually improving the conditions for workers and demanding ever more from capitalists, uh, but they were not doing that at all. Now, I know what you're thinking. What is a union raid? Let me tell you what a union raid is. (laughs) So a union raid is when a challenger or outsider union tries to take over the membership base of an existing incumbent union, usually through a union raid election in the United States. Raids can be informal through campaigning, soliciting an incumbent union's members, uh, or more direct by calling for a decertification election in a bid to take over an incumbent union's membership. Between 1975 and 1989, over 1,414 multi-union raid elections were documented by the NLRB. Now, that's post-merge, by the way, that, that, that number. But these union raids were happening, like, at the time. Brandon, yes. I get why that's insane, but can I just say for a minute that I would love to live in a world where unions are competing for my membership? <laughs> right. Like, well, and know- so that's why... That's why I yeah, make the dude. specific note uh, that, that like they were not improving the lives of workers. Like if you were like this incumbent union fucking blows, let's do this the right way. I'm all for it. But it no, was a bunch of shit. That actual situation is a problem. I'm just like venting about the fact that we are so far away from that, that even this incredibly bad situation still seems like <laughs> a world beyond where we're at right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, yeah. Like, I long for a world where multiple unions are trying to not help me (laughs) instead of how I just have one single union not trying to help me while they're saying, like, well, you could always go fuck yourself and not be in the union. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Ugh. Yeah. Now, union raids have been criticized by the labor movement because they promote rivalry between unions and they don't grow the movement instead of organizing the largely non-unionized workforce in the United States. So 100% true. The thing that I was saying was me venting, but that is that is correct. Yes. Yeah. So, again, these idiots are fucking doing this. And so, like, part of the reason for the merge was to stop that. And it's like, y'all were fucking just fucking up here. God damn. So let's get into talking a little bit more about George Meany, one of our villains for this series. George Meany was a union plumber who became a full-time union organizer and eventually the president of the American Federation of Labor. When Green's health declined in 1951, Meany gradually took over day-to-day operations of the AFL. He became president of the American Federation of Labor in 1952 upon Green's death, uh, which occurred just 12 days after the death of CIO President Philip Murray. It took Meany three years to negotiate the merger, and he had to overcome significant opposition. John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers, awesome guy, bushy fucking eyebrows. John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers called the merger a rope of sand, and his union refused to join the AFL-CIO. Jimmy Hoffa, second in command of the Teamsters Union, protested, What's in it for us? Nothing. However, the Teamsters went along with the merger initially. Mike Quill, president of the Transport Workers Union of America, also fought the merger, saying that it amounted to a capitulation to the racism, racketeering, and raiding of the AFL. Hmm, pretty much true. Pretty spot on. Fearing a drawn-out negotiation process, Meany decided on a short route to reconciliation. This meant all AFL and CIO unions would be accepted into the new organization as is, with all conflicts and overlaps to be sorted out after the merger. 
Despite their cooperation in the AFL-CIO uh, merger, Meany and Ruther had a contentious relationship for many years. Meany's commitment to the civil rights struggle was not particularly strong, uh, and this caused a great deal of friction between him and Walter. Meany also did not share quite as broad of a political vision as Ruther, which obviously affected how successful a strategy of using political power to help working people could possibly be. No matter how nice our political vision might be, we will often need to work with people who do not share our vision, and we can't be confused when we don't win under these circumstances. In 1963, Meany and Ruther disagreed about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, a major event in the history of the civil rights movement in the United States. Meany opposed AFL-CIO endorsement of the march. In an AFL-CIO Executive Council meeting on August 12th, Ruther's motion for a strong endorsement of the march was supported only by A. Philip Randolph of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the titular leader of the march. The AFL-CIO endorsed a civil rights law and allowed individual unions to endorse the march. When Meany heard Randolph's speech after the march, he was visibly moved. Thereafter, he supported the creation of the A. Philip Randolph Institute to strengthen labor unions among African Americans and strengthen ties with the African American community. Randolph said that he was sure that Meany was morally opposed to racism. I mean, yeah, maybe, (laughs) sort of, a little bit. (laughs) He's one of these, like, it's not that important, or... You know, oh, it doesn't look good. We have a lot of white workers who just, they're uncomfortable. You know, let's not rock that boat. That's George Meany. Uh, did you happen to see the meme format that I made recently, which was, I just screenshotted the Google Translate page. And then instead of whatever language was there, I just substituted reactionary, translated to English, and then started just translating things from, you know, that reactionary oh, said. I didn't, One of my I favorite didn't see ones that, but it sounds like, great. <laughs> oh, you I mean, made you that format so yourself? Things. Yeah, he just screenshotted the page, and I liked it because it also that. put our Turn Leftist podcast logo up in the corner, which was nice. But one of my favorite ones was Ananya in our Discord. She came up with the one which is, uh, she said that, like some white lady told her she's not racist because she doesn't care what color anybody is. Yeah. And so I just translated that. I said, you know, when reactionaries say we should stop talking about race, or I don't even see color, or you're dividing people by focusing on race so much, it's like, that all just translates to... I'm not bothered by racism, so I don't want to talk about it because it has never personally affected me. So let's just ignore that entirely. And that's one position you're seeing a lot. Yep. Uh, no, 100. percent I will say that that is a format that I thought you had like co-opted, and I was all about it. And knowing that that was your idea, respect. I love Once it. Once in a while, I get a good one, buddy. I, I'm still waiting for mine, but you know, I'm into <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still. Uh, I got to work on more. Uh, Walter Ruther memes for when these come out. I do have a really good one that's gonna whenever this episode comes out, I got a sick meme for this one. I think you're gonna nice. like it. Really? Now, if we're talking about leftism, that's what's important, the memes. <laughs> <laughs> um now, at the time of the 1967 AFL CIO convention, Ruther demanded that Meany make the AFL CIO more democratic as well. So he thought that George Meany wasn't being democratic enough. Now, I want to note, pretty fucking rich coming from Walter Ruther. <laughs> now, we've got some praise. We've got some criticism for Walter, but uh, he ran the UAW with an iron fist. OK, it was, you know, there was no challenging the Ruthers in the UAW like they put at every level people who supported their vision and they always won the elections. We will get into more of that in the period covering the 1960s specifically, but like 
there was not much dissent in the UAW. So again, kind of rich for Walter to be calling for this. So I don't think yeah, we're going to get to my area of interest this episode, but yeah, there was a lot of criticism of him for not really listening to the rank and file workers. Yeah. So that will become important. But anyway, again, kind of a rich criticism here. Now we're going to move on to a, a fun little topic here. Uh, and that is the American Institute of free labor development. So I'm going to ask, what do you guys think that is without knowing about it already? What is that? Sounds like a far right think tank. Yeah. yeah it, it sounds like one of those meaningless think tank names. Okay. Now what if I told you that the American Institute of free labor was actually a program run by the AFL CIO? See, I thought you were going to say run by the CIA, so I'll <laughs> Hold on. I didn't say it wasn't run by the CIA. I just... <laughs> I was going to say, Connor, if you told me it was run by the AFL-CIO, I would say it's probably still a right-wing think tank just run by the <laughs> AFL-CIO. Yeah. yeah, so that's where we're heading next. So after the AFL-CIO merge, George Meany maintained control of the whole organization while Walter became one of 37 union vice presidents... Probably the most important one, I would think, but I don't really understand union structure. So did you say one of under- thirty-seven vice presidents? Yeah, I'm. I maybe I misunderstood it, but like that's what the documentary said. Someone can fact check me on this. Maybe I'm wrong, but like Dude, that union's be- got more vices than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how, like, to me, I'm like, a vice president takes over for the president. If you got 37 of them, like, do you now have 37 presidents? Are we now a horizontal organization? Hey, uh, this might be pretty decent, but I assume it doesn't mean that. So I don't know. I don't know how that works in companies either. They have, oh, I'm the vice president of this. I'm the vice president of that. I'm like, bro, there's one fucking president that you can't have multiple <laughs> vice presidents. It doesn't make sense. So I don't know. But Walter took a backseat, right? So like I said, George Meany had all the fucking power in these negotiations and Walter was just getting on board. Um, like Walter he took it in the back door is what he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Now, now this isn't the pleasurable. <laughs> well, so <laughs> Walter still was remained outspoken and he did maintain he was still president of the UAW, the largest union of all. So he still had power. Um, and he was still loud. He was still a very public figure. But in terms of union organization, he took a lot less power within the new federation. Now, they continued to have serious political differences throughout the 50s and 60s that often played out for all to see. So they were pretty public fights. They did not get along. They hated each other. And I mean, good. George Meany was a piece of shit. Walter Ruther, a little more complicated, but George Meany definitely was a piece of shit. Now, while Walter had a broad class agenda for workers in the United States, George Meany did, in fact, have a class agenda as well for workers in Central and South America. Of course, it was the class agenda of the bourgeoisie. George Meany was a Cold War hawk and was even more anti-communist than Walter and Victor Ruther. And given how popular socialism was in Central and South America, the CIA decided something just had to be done. Uh, So they created... The AIFLD, the American Institute of Free Labor Development. It was a quote-unquote institute made up of AFL-CIO front unions used to undermine more radical unions. 
it received funds from USAID and the NED, or the National Endowment for Democracy. Well, so I, I want to make sure I'm following you here. Are you telling me that in the 1950s, the CIA started to get involved in South American politics? No. Yes. So this Frankly, is important I'm to note. surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we all know about how they were overthrowing. If you're listening to this podcast, I assume you know how they were overthrowing governments and fomenting coups and supporting, you know, various rebel groups. But one of their strategies was undermining the labor movements in Central and South America. So they have many tools in their toolbox that we have to kind of keep in mind here. So I'm not uh, going to yeah, lie. I don't actually know about this specifically. I mean, so this actually came from the interview that Michael Prenti did that again on YouTube. We link it in the uh, show notes on our feed, whatever. But the Michael Prenti interview, he does mention it. And he did write about it in his article in Covert Action Quarterly, I think it was number 54. You can look this up. It mentions the name in that video, uh, the name of the article, so you can pull that up. But he does mention this very important thing that I think kind of is lost in history for most people. So it was definitely 100% a CIA op. These unions supported reactionary and repressive governments and opposed the more leftist elements of other unions. They seemingly took a similar strategy that Walter used to fight the left factions within the U.S. labor movement. I think he could see what was going on in this case a bit more clearly, but really didn't have a good way to stop it from his position within the AFL-CIO and may have instead tried to gain more political power in, you know, kind of the political sphere. So, like, at this point, if you're Walter, you have to be looking at this going like, oh, the CIA is doing the thing that I did here <laughs> that cannot make him feel good. So Victor, his brother, was a bit more aggressively against the CIA's actions using a field. Of course, this was obviously not the only tool in the CIA's toolbox as they were fomenting coups and other tricks to overthrow governments in the region, you know, all this time. But anyone listening to this podcast, you know, most likely does know about all those CIA misdeeds. They fucking um, better. Yeah, they had better. But the use of these reactionary unions is probably a lot less known. Uh, and I think yeah. that's why it's important to mention. So this is an important time to keep in mind that they've done this in Latin America to great effect, and they can absolutely bring this strategy back home. In labor struggles going forward, we have to really consider how an increasingly late radical labor movement in the U.S. could be undermined with a similar strategy. You know, how might we defend against this? Perhaps it's by not pretending that we're not radical. Perhaps by just being unapologetically left, we could fend off such attacks. That's just a thought. I don't know if that's the answer, but like, like I said before, the more success we have in our future labor movements, the more aggressive the bourgeoisie is going to be in combating these things. Mm -hmm. And so the, the more likely we're going to see these kinds of tactics come home. So Yay, just wait for the reactionary <laughs> unions. Uh, like we've, yeah. we've already discussed the fact that, that Ruther purged leftists, or, or communists rather, and still got condemned as a communist. You don't do yourself any favors when you side with the bourgeoisie. Yeah. yeah. So just fucking don't. Yeah, and also, Connor, when you were saying that he probably didn't feel too good about the CIA doing the same thing that he was doing, I would say don't underestimate 
liberals' ability to justify their anti-leftist actions and yeah. who they will align with when they feel like they're being threatened or their material interests are threatened. Yeah. Um, now, chances are, if Walter didn't see it, he probably saw it when his plane crashed. But, you know, <sighs> just saying. Uh, sorry, Brian, you, you wanted to say something? This might be a little bit of a tangent, but I kind of want to throw some shade on Matt Christman for something he was saying recently on uh, the Hinge Points podcast. That premise of that podcast is basically just like, what if different historical things had turned out differently? Like, what would the world look like? And they did an episode on what would the world look like if Lenin had never been active in the Russian Revolution. Much, much worse. So much worse. (laughs) And (laughs) they were saying something about how, like, the Communist International would have a better standing because there wouldn't be all this, like, red baiting wrapped up in, like, Russian nationalism. You know, the communism wouldn't be, like, an external threat in, like, the U.S. or Germany or whatever. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know enough to, like, refute that thoroughly, it but it just seems wrong to me. Like It would have been a threat wherever it happened. It would always exactly. be external. Like, there's, like, oh, if it started in, I don't know, Chile... They'd be like, "Oh, it's a it's a Chilean threat, uh, you know, whatever." Exactly. Any country, no, that's yeah. crazy. I mean, it's got that's it's got to start talk. somewhere, you know. Yeah, you I can't, I can't just... imagine the situation where where capital sees a significant, serious threat to its power and it cares where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, it's right. only a problem when it comes from Russia. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's. I mean, you can see that today with like actual movements that start in the U.S. They still get called foreign in some yeah. way or another. Every protest that happened in every city across the U.S. after the murder of George Floyd was called, you know, outside agitators. Oh, it's people from other cities. It doesn't even have to be nationally foreign. They're just like, oh, this isn't people from our city doing this. It's like, yes, it is. People here are pissed off. What are you fucking saying? <laughs> One of the reasons I have found Leninism so attractive, and this could be extended to Maoism as well, is because when you look at leftist movements across the globe, there have been two that have been very effective, Leninists and Maoists, which, you know, even then Maoism is an extension of. So if you eliminate him, you don't make communism more palatable you potentially just squash one of its like theoretical leaders. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Like, what, what do you do? Wait an additional 20 years for someone else to like articulate the same ideas Lenin did. Yeah. I mean, best case scenario, I guess from their perspective, it becomes less threatening if anything. Yeah. It's, which is what they're absolutely after is to make communism less threatening to capital. So that's all it accomplishes. That's wild, too, because, like, that's what we're after. Communism has never been presented as, like, anything other than the biggest threat to our existence known to man. Yeah. And then they forget about climate change. Oh, that, don't worry about that one. <laughs> Communism is the big threat. Yeah. There's never been any idea more threatening than the one where everyone gets fed and housed. <laughs> it is very threatening to, you know, profit margins. So, yeah, well, of course, it's threatening from their perspective. All right, so almost finished up here. So Victor exposed what the CIA was doing. Now, I'm not exactly sure how he did this, but Victor made the information public. So he made sure that people knew that the AFL-CIO-supported unions in Central and South America were being funded by and run by the CIA and USAID, the National Endowment for Democracy, 
Victor is the reason we know about this today. Now, without Victor, perhaps we would still find out about it. You know, the CIA was, I don't know, sloppy back then or something. But Victor did make sure that the information was public. Now, Walter was made a little bit uncomfortable by Victor's actions here. Walter was trying to gain, uh, quote unquote, political capital and appear as a, quote unquote, loyal American to combat accusations that he was an evil and powerful socialist pulling the strings. Um, So conservatives at the time really painted Walter a lot like they paint George Soros today. It was literally the same thing. So today when conservatives, oh, George Soros is funding Antifa or whatever, conservatives literally did say the same shit about Walter. So they said he was pulling the strings. He's the puppet master, a communist, whatever, trying to create a Soviet America. Again, crazy, unhinged. He was just a fucking stand in like he was just the evil cartoon. You know, they talked about him at their fundraisers. Walter Ruther at the time was the conservatives like culture war icon. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yes, that's exactly what it was. And so Walter was trying to combat this, which we see this today and it still does not work. But he's trying to be a loyal American and, oh, no, I'm not a communist or whatever. Yeah, Brandon. If if you ever needed demonstration that like history is written by the victors, look at this. If he was like somebody who was prominent enough that they were like really making him the target of, of all of this, he's been forgotten since. Yeah. And I mean, it's wild how he was he was so powerful, like he really did have the power and no leftist today has really heard of him. I mean, that's why we're doing this is like this guy went from being a household name to totally unheard of. And part of that is because he actually in the ways that he was ineffective, he was also very effective in so many ways. And he did threaten capital. I mean, they hated him. And for good reason, all the things he advocated for were they were socialist in some sense. I mean, they were building worker power. Yeah. Capital fucking hated him. And like you said, history is written by the victors. And so no one knows anything about Walter anymore. And I think that's really sad. Yeah, I've, I've said it before. He was as effective as a reformist ever could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was the best example of those strategies. I mean, there's just no, I don't think I could think of anyone who did it better. So he really did go through a lot of effort to present himself as a loyal American. And he did this in, you know, congressional hearings where they'd go and beat on up on him. And he was, I mean, if you ever see him in these hearings, he was pretty solid. He was smart. And he was like, Hey motherfuckers, I'm an American just like you. And I just want fucking people to have like food to eat and shit. He was a good speaker and he did rile people up. So like, I can't take that away from him, but he did try and present himself in this respectable way. And what Victor did by making clear what the CIA was doing He threatened that a little bit. Now, Walter did tell Victor after this, and I don't know exactly when this happened, but Victor was always against what the AFL-CIO was doing. And of course, George Meany was 100% on board with this. Like he was, this was his project with the CIA. Walter told Victor that he was taking on an agency that could forge any document to prove they were liars. And I think that's true. That's a good assessment, shit. And so as much as we'll criticize Walter, sometimes it's like, yeah, I don't know what else you can do. Like if the CIA wants to do something, 
what are you going to do to stop him? And Walter, as much as he was in many ways a reformist, I mean, the motherfucker had to have bodyguards all the time. He had been shot. He had been almost abducted. He, you know, he's been had his ass beat. You know, Victor's been shot through and in their homes. He did effectively have his plane sabotaged and murdered in the end. Like, yeah. 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 And so as soft as you are, as loyal and American as you are, they will fucking kill you. And they'll still kill you. And Walter knew this. So Walter was, this is, I think, why Walter was trying ultimately to pursue this political sort of strategy. As I think he saw, like, the reality was, hey, these motherfuckers are trying to kill me. I have to become a political figure to protect myself and to protect labor, right? Because if it's labor against the CIA, the CIA is probably going to win. So maybe by pursuing this political strategy, we can actually change the politics and change this. I think he was wrong, but it's again, it's hard to criticize because when you look at it, you go, well, fuck, I, I kind of see where he was coming from. I see what he was trying to do. I think ultimately it didn't work, but that's why I think we need to study it and understand why it didn't work and understand, OK, we have to do the hard thing. You know, this strategy probably doesn't work. Now, his statement there, and again, this is all coming from, um, you know, Michael Parenti, uh, awesome motherfucker, of course. This shows that he understood just how dangerous it was to defy the class interests of the capitalist class. He understood how the CIA worked, and he knew he was a target. Victor ultimately believed that Walter was still somewhat glad that the truth was out there about the CIA. And like I said, because of Victor, we're now able to learn about this today. And of course, George Meany was 100% behind all of this nonsense. He was a traitor to workers around the world, and I hope he is remembered accordingly. Now, on that note, George Meany's grave can be found in Gate of Heaven Cemetery in <laughs> Silver Spring, Maryland. And I think you should go and pay your respects in the way that George Meany deserves. So once again, Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Silver Spring, Maryland. It's not that far from me. Well, if you're ever looking for a quick drive, that's a place to consider going. You're on a drive through there, you know, got to take a pit stop, go to the bathroom. Yeah, it's um, it's if you're just driving north. down the East Coast and you're looking for a good unisex restroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is just north of uh, Washington D.C. So you know, if you're in the area, go pay your respects. <laughs> uh, basically, that's all I've got for today. Next time, we'll be talking about the 1960s when Walter reaches kind of the peak of his political power and begins to steer the labor movement into a broader left agenda. He put his weight behind the civil rights movement and started agitating for more progressive sorts of programs for working people. We'll take a look at how the strategy of using political power worked out and how we might consider using political power in the future. So that's pretty much the end of my notes for right now. Uh, like I said, next time is going to be the 1960s. I'm sure we're going to touch on the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, which is incredibly important. There could be another episode after that because I think we're going to want to talk a fair amount about the plane crashes and all that good stuff. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll definitely be in the 1960s pretty solidly uh, on the next episode. Cool. Man, cool. I got to say, I can't, I'm looking forward to discussing drums approach to Walter Ruther so fucking much. And the fact that I have fixated on this one, like hyper specific movement within the UAW so long ago has gotten me to the point where I'm in a union that is weak and I'm observing their tactics and using that as like 
a vehicle to discuss issues with my coworkers. I'm like, yeah, let do motherfucker. Let's be a union within a union. Let's like show people Hell how yeah. it's fucking. Let, if the union doesn't give a fuck about you, then like you have to do more beyond that. Like, I don't know. I'm not articulating myself well, but I am I using think- drum as a model of moving forward in my own life. No, I got you. You made a, you made a good point. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, I'm drunk, so whatever. Part of like this study of Walter Ruther and the labor movement of the time in looking at it in this kind of detail is to like see what worked, what didn't, and what are we going to do in the future? Because I, I really don't, knowing history doesn't mean anything if you don't apply it. And I think mm-hmm. it's figuring out, okay, what are we going to do going forward? How are we going to get ourselves better organized in any way you know that may present itself whether it's in unions online whatever it is but we've got to get serious about the labor struggles that are going to come in the 21st century because i feel like shit's going to pop off and we've got some real external pressures that are going to play out in labor movement struggles so yeah that's why i think it's important to learn about all this stuff yeah. yeah, I mean, as we discuss, it's easy to condemn Ruther as a reformist, especially from my position. But it's kind of like uh, if you come to a fork in the road, you don't know which one is wrong until you've taken it. Yeah, it's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, this is a complicated story. Like, Walter Ruther is simultaneously a hero and a villain. Like, <laughs> there's just no way around it. It's a complex story that takes place over decades, and like. Walter did put the work in. He did do a lot of fucking great things and super smart on the ground organizing. Cannot take that away from him. Mm -hmm. But his flaws did cost workers dearly in the long run. But if it and if it wasn't Walter, surely it would have been some other labor leader. I mean, just imagine what if the UAW was headed up by another George Meany fucking clone? (laughs) We'd be nowhere. I mean, we'd be far worse off. So like. In that respect, Walter was a hero. Yeah, it's um, it's a long story, but it's very um, convoluted. Well, shit, man. I mean, and it's entertaining as fuck. Again, talking about how like you were saying, Brandon, how this shows that the, the victors write history because that's like what keeps us as podcasters, especially leftist podcasters, in material. Like we will never run out of stuff that is left out of American history that people have no idea about that they desperately need to know about if they want any chance of any kind of better future for anybody. So, yeah. We'll keep doing it as long as we need to, I suppose. Yep. It's the nightmarish part about being a leftist is that like becoming like an anarchist or communist is just the very simple process of reading these 5,000 books that rewrite everything (laughs) that you know about history so that it's an accurate depiction. Yeah. Easy peasy. Yeah. And then struggling to explain that to your friends and family who think you're all crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In my friends and family's defense, I am crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Same. <laughs> but that doesn't change the facts of history and the immortal science. Exactly. Yeah. Mike gets me. I'm on the same page, man. I mean, we have a lot more in common than we might appear, but... <laughs> All right, cool. I don't think it appears that we have a lot in common. <laughs> I, guess, um, I guess plug your podcast, even though I'm kind of a guest on yours today, but uh, go ahead and plug yours for my listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, you know, part three of our Walter Ruther series, but, uh, we've been this is part the, five, buddy. Oh, like part yeah, that's right. Guys. <laughs> I'm, hey, I'm drinking too. Okay. Brandon's Sorry. not the only drunk person on this podcast. <laughs> this is part X of a year long series. Yeah. I'm already thinking about what our next series is going to be. Yeah. I feel like, uh, you guys could do more series like this. This is, I think, cool. It's fun. I've been getting a lot of good feedback from the fans too. So yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Cool. 
Yeah. I was worried this was going to be your last series. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is kind of what we do. Our podcast has gone under because we let idiots on. <laughs> Sorry, what was that, Mike? I was already thinking about the next series that we could do with you guys. Oh, whoa. We'll have to come up with something. I like Cars and Comrades story time. I'm perfectly fine chilling and uh, letting you uh, tell me a story. It's great. Well, yeah. I tell very long stories, apparently. <laughs> I did tease, I think, on the first uh, our first episode together, you know, doing something about tanks, but I haven't really looked into that yet. Oh, yeah. But I did notice there's uh, uh, on YouTube, there's a free movie with ads just called T-34. So I don't know if that's like a docudrama or what. I haven't checked oh, yeah. it out yet. Add it to your list. Yeah, no, it's on there. I was going to say, I don't know if this was really a, a series that you did, but um, the couple episodes that you had with... I think first with uh, Brett from RevLeft and then from the, the second one with a few different DSA folks yeah. was really interesting, you know, hearing the couple different sides of that. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'm, I'm a DSA member, although I'm not real active in the last year or two mm. with the local DSA. But, you know, it, like, like you guys went into, it's a, it's a mixed bag and there's good and there's bad with it all. I was going to say, but, how many like MLs that love China do you encounter in your chapter? Like, I guess how close was that picture that they painted in the DSA episode? Because they were making it seem like the DSA is actually a lot more base than we had previously thought. So, yeah, no, I mean, if you dig a little bit and you go into the committees and you meet some folks, and you know, they'll then they'll be a little bit more open to revealing their you know their power levels. I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, um, I think wildly varying things from different chapters, and I think. Yeah, and it boils down to that. Like, if you're in yeah. a very conservative area, then being a social democrat in the DSA is pretty fucking radical. Whereas, mm-hmm. if you're in New York City, like being an ML in the DSA is probably fairly par for the course. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've heard accounts of a few Leninists in the New York DSA. Yeah, and I think I told you guys about for Halloween. I went to a party that was hosted by CPOSA. And there's a lot of DSA folks there. I'm like, hey, I know you. <laughs> so, but yeah, if there's anything that DSA and the CPUSA can agree on, it's reformism. <laughs> I throw shade at everyone because it's fun. But generally, I think if you're organizing for the betterment of working people, you're on my side. Yeah, I might not agree with your tactics, but at least your head's in somewhat of the right place, maybe. Oh, yeah, fuck. On that note, we're uh, cars and comrades. We do socialist stuff from a car perspective or car stuff from a socialist (laughs) perspective. Yeah. we got an Instagram. I share a lot of car memes and then I do make some that are like, you know, that mix of socialist and car memes, which is a very weird mix sometimes, but awesome. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I mostly run it. So it better be awesome. (laughs) Um, So we're on there. We're on Twitter. Hex bear. Facebook. We still have a Facebook, although I haven't posted on that in months. So I maybe think don't we have that. 13 people following it now. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for those 13 people. <laughs> Dedicated. <laughs> yeah, we're on social media. Come check us out there and I don't know, check out our other episodes on that are not usually six and seven episode series, you know, yeah, usually right. a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> and then for our listeners, uh, obviously, this is the Turn Leftist podcast, which If you're not already listening to them, I mean, you should. You're missing out because uh, the Turn Leftist guys really do a good job with uh, historical topics. And uh, I've learned quite a bit from your podcast. So, uh, Mike, if you You want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Thank you, comrades. No, I appreciate that. I mean, that's really good to hear. That's 
kind of what we fell into. Like we didn't even start out intending to do that, but we ended up just finding out that we were very interested in talking about leftist history, talking about figures in leftist history. Once in a while we'll delve into current events, but most of the time it's uh, in the past or just something kind of generally related to Marxism in general. So then, uh, yeah, I think that's about it for my podcast. I mean, I guess I could do our individual plug. We'll plug the Twitter. Sterling, he runs that. That's Twitter slash Turn Leftist Pod. Ward's Instagram page is Millennial Leftist, and he's on Twitter at Ward Lolly. Jaron's got a website that's jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. You get his books. And um, I'll have my Patreon list in front of me, but I can do that on the next episode anyway, because we tend to have very long episodes when I uh, record with you guys, so we'll do that next time. Yeah, that's, but, that's um, my bad. Sorry. No, it's no problem. I actually <laughs> thought we were going to go for another 25 minutes beyond this, so I'm actually... Whoa, we finished early? Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Relatively speaking. I think that's all I got, so thank you guys again for doing this. Can't wait to do it again. We'll do at least another two parts, and if not more, fine with me. Yeah. yeah Sounds sweet. good thank to you. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, I did, I, I'm just willing to accept that this is a series that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, eventually we're going to... Walter Ruther's going to die in a certain year. You know? <laughs> no, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> I'm going to start creating conspiracy theories where Walter Ruther never died. Yeah. He moved to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's actually just some random guy in the Republican Party now who's gonna come back and like prove that Q is real. No, no, we're all gonna we're all gonna meet at George Meany's grave on on a certain day, and then Walter Ruther's gonna reveal that he's always been alive, and then he's gonna run for okay. president. <laughs> oh man, he's gonna, was, he's gonna reveal that he actually just abandoned working people, but like the real catch is gonna be that it was ten years before he died. <laughs> I was when I was working on my car yesterday. I was working. I was listening to uh, that uh, QAnon Anonymous podcast about the whole whatever weird cult is in Dallas right now. Yeah, that's so sad. Like, just like they're talking to some woman whose whose sister like left her family, left her like young kids, like missed their birthdays and stuff, and like maxed out her credit cards because that one was so depressing. Yeah, no, it, it's is this it the weird gun sad. church thing? No, it's um I think it's called like negative forty-eight. Yeah. It's and it's this one. guy that's using like numerology to to interpret like these weird conspiracy theories about like JFK coming back to life and stuff. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, no, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, there was, was so much to be alive right now. Gun church though. Oh yeah, that's the Moonies that you're talking about, right? The offshoot of the Moonies in like Pennsylvania or something. Listen, if it's an offshoot of the Moonies, I didn't know that. But there is basically a church of the AR-15 right now. Supposedly, like, they're moving locations and getting a compound and getting way more. There's always a compound. (laughs) There's always a compound. (laughs) Obviously, when it's the church of the AR-15 or whatever the fuck they are, it's already probably a pretty far right organization. But supposedly, like, their rhetoric is getting more and more into, like, the end times sort of conversation. Nice. And nice. It's, yeah. it's just another like most churches. Thing. What's that? Like most churches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's the logical conclusion for a lot of Christianity now. But when everyone is showing up gun in hand, it becomes a little bit more daunting. Like, are you trying to bring the end times? Are, are you a suicide cult? Please be a suicide cult. For the love of all things, please be a fucking suicide cult. I want that so much. It's better than yeah. a homicide cult. That's for sure. Yeah. No, that's what I think they currently are. I think they're just yeah. transitioning to maybe a suicide cult. If it's the one I'm thinking of, it's uh, Rod of Iron Ministries. 
Yeah, that sounds right. And it's run by one of the sons of uh, Reverend Moon. Oh, um, that's, the, that's the South Korean church guy, right? Like the billionaire dude? Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my fucking god, I didn't even know that. These people never go so away. They just keep having kids and their demons spawn and keep doing their work. Oh my god. Cool stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Every time that I feel reinvigorated <laughs> about my beliefs, I learn some shit like that and I'm like, god damn it, I give up. Oh yeah, don't worry. This is all banter that'll either go in the front or it'll get cut. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. Then we're bullshitting. The episode's over. Super yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, well thanks again, guys. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was it was yeah. fun. Yeah, As thank always. You. Always fun. Right, I'll see you guys next time. All, all right. right. Yep. Take it easy. Adios. Later, comrades. Later. Our economy isn't about freedom at all. Just the opposite. American capitalism today is defined by an overwhelming lack of freedom for the vast majority of people. An incredible dictatorial power for a few people at the very top. Capitalism works if it works at all because it always has socialism to bail it out and, and to subsidize it. These cars are only factory through. Can be better than 180K, they can't catch you. But they don't even try. You know what? I'm beginning to like this country already. The money spent on the Iraq war alone which killed one million people, 5% of Iraq's entire population, and planted the seeds for ISIS to flourish, could have covered all global investments to halt climate change trends. James Madison, one of the founding fathers of the United States, observed in 1787 that in England, this day, if elections were open to all classes of people, the property of landed proprietors would be insecure. He went on to say that government ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. 